Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. morning we are continuing a sermon series in the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, this, we come uh, today to an interesting passage. If you thought the post-Roe v. Wade prayer was the toughest part of this, we're heading into a tricky passage as well. So uh, if you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This too is God's word. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. You can be seated. All right, deep breath. Here we go. <laughs> okay, to start, uh, I love basketball. Start on a lighter object, right? I, I really love uh, basketball. And this week uh, was the NBA draft. And uh, as apparently in most sports, my team, the Orlando Magic, is terrible. Uh, and so they got to draft first overall, just like my Jaguars get to do every single year. And one of the things that's interesting uh, that goes on around the NBA draft is player, uh, teams make these evaluations of players based on their skill, their size, their ability, and their talent. And they choose the player uh, who will come to play for their team. But the history of NBA basketball is littered with incredibly talented players tall players and players who dominated in high school or college who get to the NBA and their skills don't quite match up or their, their development doesn't match up to who they were. And I heard some people talking, uh, some of these draft talent evaluators this week, and what they said I think is true, that the context that you find, you're in, you find yourself in as a basketball player has an immense amount of influence on who you turn into. And so they were talking about the Golden State Warriors, the team that just won the NBA title. And they said, it seems that almost no matter who they draft, in that context and in that culture, they learn to become a good basketball player. If they weren't a good passer, hanging out with those guys and playing with Steph Curry and all those guys, eventually you start to get the angles and see the plays and become a, an unselfish passer. If you're a little bit lazy on defense, eventually playing with Draymond Green yelling at you every single possession... Eventually, you learn to become a high-effort defensive player. In the same way, if you get drafted into the wrong situation and develop bad habits, 
you might never develop into your potential. And so what's true of basketball teams, I think is true in all of the, the various facets of our lives, is that the culture you're in, the community you're a part of, shapes who you become. Right? A basketball team is a community. It's a small community of skill and competition. And the people you're around in that little small community affect the character of the player you become. And that is a lot of the way that church works and the way that Paul is instructing Timothy here is that the culture of faith and character and virtue is meant to shape us into people of faith and character and virtue. The discipleship, which is the, the primary call on a church to make disciples, doesn't just happen uh, when two people meet together or somebody teaches another person or you're sitting together and, and think you're discipling someone, that it happens in a community where you experience and catch a culture of Christ-like faith and virtue and love. And so what we see here is Paul instructing Timothy, the coach, on how to lead his team, the church, into becoming a community where virtue is formed and where Christ-like character is formed. It takes a little bit of work to see how that's what's going on here, but I believe it is. So what we ought to ask is, what are the marks of a fellowship of virtue? The first is that a fellowship of true virtue does not divorce worship and ethics. Notice these first, this first verse. First of all, oh no, I'm sorry. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I'm urging you to worship. I'm calling you to worship. But this life of worship isn't just about when you come together to worship and you lift your hands and you feel drawn into worship. This life of worship is joined in an unbreakable way with the life you lead with, in love towards God and your neighbor. That worship that, that flows out of a heart and through hands that have also been busy with anger and argument and quarreling are not holy hands meant for worship. So what Paul's saying is that there's a joining of our worshiping lives and our ethical lives that can't be divorced from one another. That worship and a life lived in the character of Jesus are joined together in a seamless garment of faithfulness. I think that the, the clear Old Testament reference here that Paul's drawing on is Isaiah chapter 58. We're going to start preaching through Isaiah uh, in the fall, which I'm incredibly excited about. Um, but, so I don't want to step on that sermon too much because that's going to be a good one. But this is, Isaiah 58 is fundamentally a God's critique of his people, that they offer the form of worship while at the same time neglecting the poor among them, practicing violence and injustice in their community. One quote that kind of sums up uh, their approach, is, or, or the whole chapter, Isaiah 58, 3. The people say, we have fasted and you see it not. We have humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. And God replies, behold, in the day of your fasting, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all of your workers. Right? So they had divorced or they were attempting to divorce worship from ethics. And what was going on in Ephesus, the place where Timothy lived and pastored, 
was that we know from elsewhere in the book that the church was being torn apart through quarreling and argument, that anger and self-righteousness and factions were developing within the church. And Paul says, look, you can't then just walk into worship and lift your hands and pretend all that is well if your heart is consumed with anger and judgment. What Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount is a, is a breaking of the fifth commandment that you should not murder, that it's the same heart. So Paul is saying, if you're going to claim to be worshiping Jesus, you have to commit your life to following Jesus. And a church that honors God is one that obeys God and creates a coherent witness in a flourishing community. You know, if you've been around church for any length of time, uh, you have gone to, you, you've heard somebody go into a new church or telling you about a new church, and they tell you something like, oh, you should hear the worship, right? Or somebody will ask, hey, how was the worship today? And typically, we all know what they're asking, right? How was the music? Is the music at that place good? And now, fortunately, here, we have wonderful music. But if you were to go up to Paul or to Isaiah and say, how was the worship? They would say, well, that depends. It has almost nothing to do with how much you like the music or if you liked the songs or if you were familiar with them or if it sounded awesome. They would say that depends. Were the hands that were lifted in worship committed to holiness and to justice? to the love of neighbor, to humility and mercy and service and peace and chastity and righteousness. How was the worship? Well, we are not the audience that gets to determine how the worship was. God looks at us and he looks at our lives. And what he longs to see is a holistic life, one that's lived in faith and gratitude for the gospel, overflowing not only in songs and in prayers, but in the concrete love of God moving out into love of neighbor. And so a community that that encourages virtue is one that doesn't uh, divorce worship from ethics, but seeks to live all of life as an act of worship. Secondly, it's a community that pursues virtue and resists vanity. It pursues virtue and resists vanity. Look at what Paul writes. Likewise, in verse 9, also women should should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. What Paul's saying here is that, uh, he's speaking initially to women, but it applies more broadly, is that, look, there's what is seen when you see a person And then there's who the person really is, right? That external beauty is one thing and internal character is another thing and that we should not confuse the two and that we should not live our lives solely in the pursuit of external marks of beauty, success, and respectability, right? That what happens on the inside, who we're becoming matters more always than what looks like on the outside. Now, look, all, all sorts of what he writes here is, is culturally uh, needs to be translated, right? So what does he say? He says, women shouldn't braid their hair or wear uh, gold or pearls or expensive jewelry. And it's, I, think we're, I, I don't think it takes too much explanation to understand that we're, on some, we're in cultural water when we get to that, right? That braided hair must have meant something 
in this Greek culture in which he writes that it does not mean in other cultures, right? A missionary would be a fool to go into a culture where every woman wears braided hair and to say, look, in the name of Jesus, unbraid your hair, right? Because what Paul is getting at here is something deeper than just how you dress. It's deeper than just do you braid your hair, do you not braid your hair? Is your, uh, is your, are you modest enough, not modest enough, right? All of those things will be on somewhat of a sliding cultural scale. But what he is saying is look for the markers that indicate an ostentatious, ostentatious show of well, ironically, using the word ostentatious in a sermon actually is a little bit ostentatious. Um, but uh, you know, don't, don't consume yourselves with the things that put you at the, at the tip top of the social and, and, uh, and wealth glamour world of your day. Don't pursue vanity in, in purely external shows, but cultivate an inner life of virtue and character. This is applicable uh, throughout the biblical story. Right, think uh, just to cite one instance. Uh, in the book of 1 Samuel, we're told that the, the people of Israel, they didn't just want a king. They wanted a king like the other nations, right? And so when they went to pick a king, who did they choose? They chose Saul right? The first king of Israel. And notably, we're told that Saul was taller and bigger and stronger than all of the other men of Israel, right? And that's what it meant to seek a king like the nations. You go with the biggest, strongest, tallest, right? The guy who could kill the other guys gets to be king. But who did God choose as the second king of Israel? Somebody who wasn't big or strong or powerful in the world's eyes, Right, somebody who was the runt of the litter of his father's family, somebody who did uh, grow up as a shepherd, the King David. Right, and so what did Samuel say when he anointed David as king? He says, look, God does not see as the world sees. I see him as my king. Right, and there's so much in that God does not see. He's not preoccupied with what the world sees. He can see past what the world sees to what's true of the heart. And this is incredibly good news for men and women together. It's good news whether you think that you are at the tip top of the showing off, looking good scale. If you, you know, woke up, walked out of the door this morning and said, yep, I look great. Or if you've been made to feel in your life like you're somewhere not on the most impressive, most amazing, strongest, biggest, tallest, most beautiful Because it's good news to hear, look, God doesn't just see what the world sees. Yes, beauty is a gift. It's to be treasured and enjoyed. But inner life, the inner life, who you're becoming matters infinitely more than whether you turn heads as you pass the street, whether whether people look at you and go, man, where'd you get that necklace, hat, shirt, shoes? New York Times columnist uh, David Brooks in a wonderful article distinguishes between what he calls the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues, right? The resume virtues are those things that you can put down on paper. I did this at my job. I made this much, did this much, grew this much. The eulogy virtues are the things that you want people to say about you at your funeral. Loved people, sacrificed his life, always kind, always generous, generous. 
Here's what he writes. He says, it occurred to me that there were these two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the skills that you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral, whether you're kind, brave, honest, or faithful. Were you capable of deep love? We all know that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and our educational system spend more time teaching the skills and strategies that you need for career success than the qualities that you need to radiate that sort of inner light. Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than how to build inner character. More aware of how to build an external life that's impressive than an inner life of character. In the church, Paul's urging Timothy, should be a place that sees through the superficial to what matters, where what gets rewarded What gets praised, what gets encouraged is the cultivation of Christ-like character, following after Christ with kindness and love and selflessness and courage, not simply uh, applauding those who seem to be getting on well in the external world, but cheerleading and encouraging one another to become who Christ has called us to be. And then finally, that a community of virtue encourages the growths and gifts of both women and men. Okay, we are now at the tough part of this passage. Uh, This is a tough part, not simply because uh, it's difficult uh, for us to wrestle through in our own culture. It's difficult uh, because it contains a lot of language uh, that is found nowhere else in the New Testament. So normally when biblical scholars come to a section of scripture, you go, okay, if there's a word I'm not quite sure of, how does Paul use it elsewhere? Or how do other New Testament writers use this Greek word? But some of the most important words in this chapter don't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, that's led some people, I think, to go too far and to question whether or not Paul wrote uh, the letters to Timothy. But we believe that he did. I think the evidence suggests that he did. But it just means that these are gonna be some difficult difficult interpretive choices that we have to make. Not only uh, that, but then some of the instructions will seem not only to be out of step or in tension with our contemporary ideas about fairness and justice, but actually also in some tension and contrast with what Paul writes elsewhere in the New Testament. And one of the things that we believe is that to understand any passage of Scripture rightly, we have to understand it in its context. Right? We have to understand it in the context in which we find it. And if we believe in the authority of God's word and it, that it's God-breathed, then it won't contradict itself with what it says elsewhere. That if two passages seem to contradict themselves, then it's not they that are in contradiction, but our understanding. Right? That we have to work to try to understand Scripture as a whole. And to mention just one of these tensions, here at first reading, Paul seems to be prohibiting women from speaking in public in worship services. And yet elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives women instructions for what they ought to do when they're praying and teaching in worship or in the gathered church. And so you go, Paul, well, which is it? Do you want to instruct women in how to pray and teach? Or should no woman ever pray and speak? 
So how do we bring these into some coherent understanding where Paul, the same man, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is saying something coherent both to Ephesus and to Corinth? The choices that we make here matter, uh, and they matter to real people, right? These aren't just kind of esoteric decisions about how we ought to interpret these things. One set of interpretive choices, just to give kind of broad examples, one set of choices will lead to a community in which women are not permitted to wear skirts, makeup, or jewelry, not permitted to teach, to live in complete submission uh, to men in the, in the rule of both the home, society, and church, right? And we, some would even say that that reading of it is what we would call the plain literal reading of the Bible, Right when, uh, when, when I went with uh, my oldest son on a, uh, uh, a, a tour of D.C., we also went up into uh, Pennsylvania where we visited the, um, oh, not Mormons, not Quakers, Amish, right? Where every woman you pass is wearing floor-length skirts and has her head covered. And they believe that this is exactly what biblical faithfulness requires. In fact, uh, so certain are they of their right reading of this, this is fascinating in a bad way, um, that the women wear their, their, their clothing is held together by pins, right? Not buttons, not zippers, but pins, because I don't know why, but that's why. Um, and those pins, when they're single, before they're married, are all pointing out so that if any man gets handsy, they get poked by pins. And then when they get married, they turn them in so that when her husband or child goes to hug her, it hurts her, but not them. You go, okay, you're in a community now where clearly a woman was not consulted in the fashion choices, right? A mother of a grabby two-year-old was not consulted in making these choices. So one set of decisions that you make leads you down that road. Another set of interpretive choices may lead a community to say, look, we all know that Paul was a misogynist. We all know that ancient people had backward ideas about uh, men and women and gender. So there is no significance for the contemporary church with anything Paul says here, and we should feel free to throw it away. That's another set of choices. It should be, if you've been with us for any length of time, I hope you'll get that we're, we, we would advocate for neither of those. Right? That, that there, there are, a, a, there's a series of kind of options along the way that one might choose. And so let's first notice something as we interpret this that's going to be important for us. The first is, and this is basically it, to, to say that something has cultural considerations to it is not to say that it has no lasting relevance for our lives. So if you minimize the cultural condition of what Paul's saying, you might go to a rigid, literal reading of it, right? But if you say that it's all cultural, you lose out on the teaching. And what I think we'll see happening in this passage is that at every point, there's both some ethical teaching that's helpful and useful and life-giving across cultures and some parts of it that are cultural applications for what it means to live out the principle in the, in the real world. This has been going on in the whole passage. Look, Remember what he says at the first part, men everywhere are to lift up holy hands in worship, not given to quarrelsome, quarrelsomeness or anger, right? So the ethical principle in there is that your hands that you bring into worship ought not to be hands tainted by anger or vitriol or quarrelsomeness. 
right? That's the principle. The lifting of holy hands is cultural, right? You wouldn't come to somebody who didn't lift their hands in worship and say, hey, brother, you got to get your hands in the air. You are sinning. If you fold your hands, if you hold them like this, you're sinning against God. No, you wouldn't say that. You'd say, look, holding hands up means something cultural that you may choose to do or not to do. But whether you hold them like this, or you hold them like this, or you hold them like this, the lack of anger and quarrelsomeness that you bring into worship is the principle. Right? Likewise, women should choose virtue, character formation, over braided hair, pearls, gold jewelry. Right? The cultural part of that would be the external markers, the braided hair, the gold jewelry, those kind of pieces of it. The, the part that applies beyond culture would be that the inside, the character formation, matters more than whatever those cultural markers might be. And so we ought to expect the, to find the same kind of thing here. Something timeless, something kind of, kind of core to the ethical life that's lived out across cultures and throughout the Christian tradition and parts of it that Paul is writing in a very tailored way to this culture and this church. And we should be able to figure that out. One of the things worth noting about Paul's letters to Timothy is that women are addressed more and the behavior of women is addressed more in First and Second Timothy than anywhere else in the New Testament. That Paul writes more about the conduct of women to Timothy in Ephesus than he does anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, it seems to be that two things were going on in Ephesus. One was quarreling and argument and division. The other was false teaching that was running rampant, right? Paul's been spending a lot of time talking to Timothy about correcting false teaching. And it seems like what's happened in Ephesus is that this false teaching had caught on and it had caught on primarily among a group of women. And so Paul is specifically writing to the women in Ephesus that they need to be on guard and that Timothy needs to be on guard against this false teaching that's working its way through the, the, the ladies of the church. For instance, in 2 Timothy, Paul says something that leads you to believe, if you just read it at face value, that women were more naturally uh, given to deception and false teaching that they're more gullible and more easily deceived. But that's different than what Paul writes elsewhere. You don't find that elsewhere. And so what we have to find is, look, it's not that all women are gullible and easily deceived. It is that these women <laughs> were for a season being led astray. And he's concerned that Timothy and the elders that they had put in place there do the work of seeking out those women and protecting them from this. One of the things that we know about Ephesus was that it was the center of the worship of uh, the Greek goddess Diana, the Roman goddess Artemis, that she was a, a female divinity uh, that was led by a priestess cult. So the leaders in the, the worship of Diana were all women in that their worship and religion was, was based on a hierarchy of women over men, right? So it wasn't one of male-female equality. It was one of the, where women were closer to the divine, where women were, had certain secrets and certain powers that the men didn't possess. And so some have thought that maybe what happened was going on in, in, in the Ephesian church was that some of these ideas were beginning to move into the church. And so what was happening was that this false teaching was leading not 
these people to seek partnership and cooperation and equality between the men and the women of the church, but actually female dominance between the men and the women of the church. And so what Paul teaches Timothy is he says uh, first that he's arguing that the scriptures actually are against the dominance of women over men and the dominance of men over women, right? That Remember what he said to, to James and John earlier in the scriptures, that those who lead in the church, those who serve in the church, shouldn't lord it over those that they serve, right? That, that, that there's a part of the character of Christian service and ministry that's based on not taking a powerful position above, but coming alongside in service. And what Paul is working to do here uh, is to encourage these women towards faithful discipleship. It's a little bit hard to see here because of the English and because of, I think, our own culture. But first, notice what he says. He writes, let a woman learn. Right? We almost can't help but read that in a kind of pejorative way. Right? You almost can't help as an American to read, let a woman learn and go, you know what, ladies? Y'all need to sit down and learn. But most of these believers were coming from a cultural background that actually women weren't brought in to the learning of the discipleship community. In the Jewish synagogue, the men, the men were permitted serious biblical and scriptural education, and the women weren't. This is why uh, it's so radical in the Gospels when Mary, remember, sits at G we're told she sat at Jesus' feet to learn, that she took the posture of a disciple that she sat among the disciples to learn from Jesus. And so when Paul writes, let a woman learn, we hear and only learn. But what I think would have been heard was, ladies, learn. You're in this with us. We need, we, Jesus didn't tell the disciples to go and make disciples of all men, but to go and make disciples of all people. And so let a woman learn, include her. I learned something of the horror of this uh, when it's absent. From my, from my friend Khan in Afghanistan, when the Taliban took over, one of the very first fears that he had was that his daughter was no longer going to be enabled to learn. And in fact, she was. She was prohibited from attending school anymore. So her, her education stopped at seventh grade. And into a culture like that, the invitation, let your sisters learn. Let them learn. Let them be disciples. Then he adds the qualification, quietly and submissively. The word quietly here, so uh, quietly is the, is the better word. It's uh, some older translations had a woman should learn in silence, but learning in general in those days was not done in silence, right? These, the, uh, what went on in the synagogues and in the early church wasn't monologue. It was something more like an interactive discussion. And so to learn meant to ask questions, it meant to speak, it meant to interact. So to learn quietly the word for quietly that's used here is the exact same word used earlier in the chapter in verse 2. When, when Paul prays that all the people, all the Christians might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So that the posture of the Christian, the posture of the disciple and the learner was to be one of a quiet and submissive heart that comes to God to learn from his word how to live and how to follow him. The word that's used here that Paul is not permitting, says, uh, 
Don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. This is probably the toughest word of all. It's the Greek word authentane, which we find actually nowhere else in the New Testament. So it's a word that we have to look outside the New Testament to gauge usage. In 75% of its use in contemporary Greek texts doesn't mean authority in the healthy God-given sense, but authority in the, in, in the dominating sense. Right? It's different than the word that Paul uses to talk about the authority of elders, to think about the authority of, of uh, parents over children. There were other words that Paul could have chosen here for God-given natural authority. But instead, what he chooses is authentane, it's dominance. And so what he's saying to, to these women is you should not teach in a domineering or dominating way to get over on or above the rest of the church. You shouldn't believe, uh, perhaps as they were learning in their culture, that you stand above the men to dominate them. You shouldn't seek to spread these teachings that have caught on apparently among them. But like other Christians in service, you should take a posture of humility and service. You know, if you remember from the early chapters of Genesis, after the fall, a part of the curse that was given to Adam and Eve was that their sons and daughters would be locked in a kind of battle for dominance, right? That your desire will be for the man, but he will rule over you, right? That no matter how much we long for intimacy and togetherness and partnership, that there is this wrestling that goes on where we live with this idea that for men to get up, women got to get down. For women to go up, men have to go down. And it's not intended to be that way that Adam and Eve were created to serve as allies in the kingdom of God, arm in arm against the darkness of this world. And what Paul sees happening in Ephesus is this wrestling, this one up, one down, women up and men down, which brings us to the rather odd conclusion that Paul comes to. <laughs> he says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and she became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue with faith and love and holiness and self-control. Okay, first reading of that, it seems like what Paul's saying is, women, don't teach because you're, it's easy for you to get deceived because Eve got deceived, the world fell into sin, and now only if you have babies will you be saved. Right? That... That seems like what he's saying there. But that reading has certain real problems. The first is the question, whose fault was the fall? If you ask Paul almost anywhere else in the New Testament, you know how Paul answers that question? Adam. Adam was the head. Adam was the man. Adam was the one with whom God made covenant. Adam was the one he told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when he tells the story of human history, he tells the story of fall in Adam and renewal and redemption in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. So we can't read this scripture to say, look, if it wasn't for women, we never would have had sin. Right? Adam had it going just great until old deceitful, deceivable, gullible Eve came along. No. So it doesn't mean that Eve is primarily responsible for sin. It doesn't mean that Adam is more valuable than Eve because Adam was made first. Right? Look what it says. That he was formed first 
and then Eve, right? What that doesn't mean is that the thing made first matters most, right? If that were true, then the birds and the fish and the animals, which were formed before Adam, would count more than Adam. But there's another way biblically that the word, the language of formation goes, not just physical formation and creation, but mere moral and spiritual formation, right? Adam was formed first in the sense that Adam was the one who received the covenant. Adam was the one who God gave the moral instruction of how he was to live, what he was to do to avoid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was given a moral and a spiritual formation first, and that he was expected, having received that moral and spiritual formation, to protect it and to pass it on, to teach it and to, and to form Eve in that same way. But that failed to happen. And so sin and deceit entered into the world through Adam and through Eve. But Paul's logic in seizing on Eve is this. Even in that sin, in Eve's sin and in Adam's sin, in their fall into shame and their fall into sin, there was a promise. Do you remember what that promise was? That the seed of Eve, the, the children of Eve, would triumph over the seed of the serpent. So when it says she will be saved through childbearing, instead of meaning, ladies, you can go to heaven if you have babies, it means she, Eve, the way that the redemptive story goes forward is through the seed of the woman. It's through her giving birth to what becomes Israel, that becomes Christ, that becomes the church. That God's redemptive story means the triumph of his people through fallen and redeemed Eve and her greater son Jesus over the head of the woman. And for that, rea and for that reality to come into being, it requires the men and the women of the church serving together in the church as brothers and as sisters, right? It means that these women who have been led astray by false teaching need to be redeemed. They need to be brought back into the fold. They do need to learn for a season. They do need to sit in quietness and humility as the church restores them to themselves, restores them to the gospel so that they can, as daughters of Eve, take their place among the children of Adam and Eve, redeemed in the greater Adam Christ to be representatives of his kingdom, formed in virtue, encouraging one another to faithful discipleship. Because as Paul told us in Romans, God would soon crush Satan. He would crush Satan's head under our feet, under ours, the church's feet, as we face out together against the darkness of this world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for uh, even sermons that take some hard work, uh, even uh, learning that takes some digging. Lord, we believe that every, uh, every bit of your word is for us, and it's good for us, and it builds us up, and it lifts us up. Lord Jesus, we do pray that our church would be a fellowship of virtue, that we would be a community where men and women and children learn what it means to follow Jesus. We would learn what it means to believe rightly and to live rightly, to live lives that, that glorify you and our community and love our neighbors. We pray that our worship would be pleasing to you because it's joined to lives that are pleasing to you. 
through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the remarkable mercy that you've poured out on us. Lord Jesus, help us to not grow weary in the work of doing good, but to encourage one another in this life of following Jesus. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.